Blog Talk Radio. He's a man who's going to tell you like it is. You can never be afraid of something that you don't know about. Now that's ignorance. And for us, ignorance is not bliss. He's a man who's not afraid to talk about the real issues and not skate around it. Don't you think it's about time that you got tired of where you are? I mean, you have got to be ready for God to do something for you and let him move. He's a man who loves his God, his country, and his people. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not too fond of the political state of the world, and particularly the U.S. as it is right now. But if you want change, you have to make it happen. You can't keep settling for less than what you ought to have. He's a man who's sowing seeds of life, love, and liberation to anybody who's willing to hear. There comes a point in time where everybody just needs to shut their mouth up and listen to God. God is the one who will lead us, and God is not true. He'll tell us everything we need. That covers every area, every facet, from politics to church to you name it. God's got it covered. He's a man that seeks the heart of God for the people of God. You're listening to Zero Today with Pastor Lorenzo Neal. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Zero Today. I am your humble host, Dr. Lorenzo Neal, hailing from Cajun Land, USA, here to present you with seeds of wisdom, insight, empowerment, and liberation. We are promoting a knowledge that is engaging and transforming, and as always, it's our goal to empower you, our listeners, to knowing and impacting the world around us. And you're welcome to join us on this illuminating journey. As always, you can visit us on all of our social media we are live on the Zero Network on Facebook, on the Dr. Lorenzo Neal's uh, page on Facebook, and uh, I guess also my personal page on Facebook. All our social media are available. Follow us on Twitter. The show handle is at Zero Radio. My personal handle at Lorenzo T. Neal. Also, if you'd like to get your thoughts, insights, two cents, four cents, six cents a dollar in, you can do so by calling 347-237-5230. 347-237-5230. That is the number that you can call to get your thoughts on the air. We're excited today. We've got a lot we're going to try to talk about in such a short amount of time. Um, and uh, I, I tell you, this has been a very interesting several days, several weeks. And I... I I know we've been inundated by so much uh, messaging that the mainstream media has been putting out towards us regarding police-involved shootings, and it seems like they're happening so much more frequently. And um, if you're like me, it's traumatizing uh, because the narrative is always being pushed, particularly towards black men. That any encounter we may have with black pol- uh, with police, <laughs> black or white, may end in our death, and that is not a that's not something I I want to have on my brain um, day after day. And I I know it's not something many of you want to have on your brain, which is why we're going to talk about it. And as you know, the most recent um, one that has been making the news is Mister. Um, Mr. Andrew Brown, who was um, uh, he was killed in the hands by the hands of police officers or law enforcement, um, and the narrative that's being pushed. And I, I've said this before, and I, I say this again, over and over: uh, do not believe the initial narrative that's pushed out. Don't believe it. Uh, we had to learn this the hard way with Javon Martin. We had to learn this the hard way with. Um, Michael Brown Jr., we had to learn this the hard way, even with George Floyd. We had to learn the hard way that the the immediate narrative that is pushed is not always correct. And in some time, in some ways, it's led to, uh, you know, it's led to bad results, not to the results that we wanted. So today, I want to talk about um, black lives or black menticide. And if you don't know what menticide is, uh, that's, in so many words, it's brainwashing. Black lives or black menticide, what is really, uh, what's the truth for urban black communities? And 
I really wanted to talk about this because we're in the age of we're we're in the age of a lot of distrust in systems altogether. And while many people are are calling uh, police-involved shootings a systemic issue and wrapping it within the language of racism, I think that's a false narrative we have to address, not knocking the fact that a vast majority of the ones that come before the American public happen to involve black men, thus pushing this narrative that the likelihood of a black man encountering a, having a negative encounter with a police officer is high. And that's not the case. We, we know that statistically, but I, we'll get to that later. But we disregard all the police interactions, the broad breath, breath, the breadth of police interactions that go unreported, the ones that uh, do not involve police, uh, uh, well, black people, black men in particular, and um, the fact that there are so many others that are occurring that we just don't even know about. And the other thing that we have to address is the fact that there is a great deal of black-on-black homicide that goes underreported in major news outlets, but goes overreported in local news outlets and there's that disparity also so we try to what we're going to try to do today is try to find this balance betwixt the two um so that we won't we won't be overwhelmed with the trauma that comes along with this as well as have a means of truly addressing this in a way that will not um bring further trauma and fear and anxiety on black men like myself whenever we encounter law enforcement. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this, uh, uh, black, uh, black lives versus black menticide. And I, I have a reference that I want us to, if you have the time to go and read, and it's a book. Um, it's a book by... Pull it up here real quick. It's a book by Just A. Merlu, Merlu, M-E-E-R-L-O-O, and the book is titled The Rape of the Mind, and I'll be using this as a resource uh, in, in, in this dialogue, this discussion, whatever we may have today. And just so you know, Dr. Merlu is a medical doctor. Uh, psychiatrist who studied uh, brainwashing, thought control, and uh, mental side way back in the 50s. Um, and this book has been used over that period, since that period of time. And it's, it's, it's a long read, but uh, it's, I think in this moment it's very, very um, relevant, especially for those of us who are engaged in uh, gun violence prevention movement and uh, domestic violence prevention movement, any type of community engagement to change the behaviors of and the thoughts of people disenfranchised, and I know there's a broad word there, but people who feel disenfranchised. So um, we're, we're going to talk about that. And I also like to know if you guys can hear me pretty good because um, – all three of you who are watching <laughs> or listening, uh, I'd love to know if you can hear me. You just leave a comment wherever you're listening from. Um, say hello, I hear you. Or if you'd like to uh, be on the show, uh, again, we invite you to do that. And, uh, just let me know. We'll try to get you on either by way of call. Uh, and if you want to call, 347 uh, Shoot me an email, Pastor Lorenzo Neal at gmail dot com. Um, and if you want to be on the show, uh, as far as you know, be seen. And, um, and uh, last week we tried this integrated uh, version, and my camera is just so shaky, y'all. The 
integrated version of of the the broadcast with video. So uh, this is still an experimental stage, y'all. So y'all bear with us. We you know, we lost audio last week and trying. We had a guest on, a uh, guy called in, um, and just had some issues. And I think we're a little better now. But if you would, we gladly welcome you. So let's get right into this topic. Andrew Brown, young man, killed at the hands of police, and the narrative is that he was killed while driving away. Um, initially, the police were called because of arrest warrants or something to that nature. I mean, I've I read through it, and at, the, at that time, there's several others that was happening. And, uh, and, and again, the way the media portrays this, these stories of unarmed black men losing their lives at the hands of law enforcement, the first thing that they always mention is that um, that the individual was, you know, in some way not responsible for their death. And then we later discover, with exceptions, there are always exceptions. This is not the, this is not the norm. But usually the person had done something contributing to their, de- to their death. And those persons who on the other side would say, oh, they they shouldn't have been resisting. If they hadn't been resisting, then uh, they probably wouldn't have lost their lives. But we know there are cases where persons complied and still lost their lives. So we can't use that generality. The second is that they they, uh, just kind of gloss over a person's criminal history. Now, those on the right, report and who are the ones backing the blue and there are a lot of those I, I don't even want to get into them uh, those individuals who purport backing the blue well they are always saying um, if they had not resisted they would not have been killed and they led to their own demise and we know that is not the case the, the argument then becomes one of the criminal history they, the uh, the right media, the, the, those those media outlets that are more right leaning, tend to focus on the individual. I don't know why my screen is doing this. Y'all got to uh, disregard. It. Tend to focus on the individual's criminal history if they have one, and if they don't have one, they find uh, nuances of criminal activity that they could use to, in some ways. Uh, demonify, demon. I don't even know if that's a word, to make this per demonize, that's what I was trying to find, the individual, and again, saying that this is what contributed to their death following an incident involved with police. And again, we know that is not always the truth. Now, does it, there, there are many who have criminal records, criminal histories, that have had negative interactions with police prior to uh, the one that led to the demise. And it's true, we ought to recognize that. But we also need to put it in perspective. Now, if these are career criminals, for example, the young man who um, everybody, I believe it was in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that he had gotten, uh, he he was shot by police, Later, I think he's still paralyzed. I don't know. But anyway, uh, the narrative was that he was unarmed and all of this, but we later discovered that was not the case. He had a, he had a history of, of domestic issues, and that culminated in what he was experiencing with the police. Again, whether that shooting was justified or not, that has to be determined by that uh, jurisdiction's, uh, you know, what they, how they, how their jury is going to decide, or whatever, however that process is. I don't know. And then we have clear cases of, well, just where officers were just clearly in the wrong. Chauvin is an example of that. Uh, Officer Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. That was completely unnecessary. And if you watch the trial, you heard all uh, the medical jargon that was presented to justify Chauvin's verdict. 
guilty verdict. And then there are officers who, uh, like the officer involved shooting where she thought she got her taser and it turned out to be a gun, things like that, uh, where, whether it was a mistake or intentional, we don't know because we're not in the mind of that individual. Cops have to think quickly. And they think quickly and they act quickly, as in the case of uh, the young teenager Makai last week. And while speaking of that, here's the other thing. Just as she was, her incident, Makai, uh, I can't think of her last name. I want to say it was, uh, oh, Lord, I can't think of her last name. Yeah, Brian, I believe that was it, Makai Bryant. 16-year-old killed by the hands of police officers in a split-minute decision. At the same time, in Cincinnati, Ohio, this happened This happened in Columbus, Ohio, Micaiah's incident. At the same time, in Cincinnati, Ohio, two 13-year-olds were involved in a, uh incident where it led to the death of one of those 13-year-old girls by way of stabbing. And the, the victim... Um, or, or the perpetrator was being bullied and took that out in this act, this heinous act of crime. And as a result of that act, two 13-year-olds will lose their lives. Uh, one has lost her life physically. The other one has lost probably not all of her life, but a great portion of her life will be spent incarcerated as a juvenile. She may not be able to get out till she's 21, you know, and hopefully they don't try to do anything more, uh, you know, and hopefully by the time she gets in there and comes out at 21, she will be reformed, rehabilitated, and she can return to uh, the world as she, you know, as we know it. But anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. The, the whole of the matter that we're facing right now as black people, we have to decide where do we put our energy. The Black Lives Movement that started shortly after Trevon Martin and really came to prominence after Michael Brown Jr.'s death in Ferguson, Missouri, and even more prominent last year after George Floyd. That movement, that mantra, that movement was to help, supposedly help black people understand the value of black lives not just lost to police, but the value of black lives entirely. But we're now seeing that that is not the case. Uh, you know, uh, there are certain black lives that they matter, um, and certain black lives just don't matter. We contend with each other on this, and, and it shouldn't be. We, we contend with the fact that should we have as much passion about the crimes committed against our own selves Violent crimes that include domestic violence, that include aggressive acts of acts of aggression with our young boys, you know, um, and that it also includes uh, violent acts, armed robbery, things of that nature. Should we put as much emphasis on that as we are doing in putting emphasis on the lives of black men who lose their lives? at the hands of law enforcement. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, I know uh, there are people, four figures, uh, figures who are at the forefront of this, Ben Crump, Al Sharpton, and, uh, well, those are the two prominent, too. That, that, these are the ones the media automatically turn to. Attorney Ben Crump, he's a wonderful man. I've had the opportunity to speak with him, meet him. Uh, but the reality is, you know, some people are calling him a uh, 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 a hustler, you know, he's he's becoming the new face of race hustling because every family that has been impacted by uh, crimes that involve law enforcement, he's there. And I don't know how he gets there so fast, but he's there. And at the same time, um, we have we don't have the same type of high-profile personalities coming to uh, places where the violence against black people, self-inflicted violence against black people is there. 
in Jackson. We're already at nearly 50 homicides, uh, probably even over 50 homicides by now. I, um, I, I have, you know, I've been shutting myself off because I, I just can't deal with that as a survivor of gun violence, as an advocate of gun violence prevention. Um, it, it's just, you know, it, it's too much. Every time I hear of someone losing their lives, gun violence or the violence of any kind, it's, it's just reinforces and reignites the sense of grief and trauma that I've been experiencing and many others experience. But here, here, here's the thing. Why don't we have that same type of profile, high-profile person coming? Uh, okay. Why don't we have the same type of person come, high-profile person coming to address the issue and bring to the forefront the issue of self-inflicted violence in our community. Very, very overwhelming. Somebody said it's very overwhelming. Uh, yeah, it, it is overwhelming. This is overwhelming. This violence that we are seeing that, that is being pushed to us, it's, 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 it's really changing our psyche and our thought processes when it comes to how we engage law enforcement and how we engage others. But I'm going to come back. I'm going to circle back to that in, the, in a minute. Thanks so much, Amy, for that comment. Appreciate it. So here, here's the thing. We know that there's a greater chance of a black man being killed at the hands of another black man than there is for a black man being killed at the hands of a person in law enforcement. That's just reality. It's not knocking when that happens because I think when it does happen, there should be a, a broad cry for justice. There be, should be a broad cry for transparency when it comes to the investigation and all of that. I, I think that is very much imperative. Yet at the same time, when we have high homicide rates on our own set, and it just goes, you know, it's, it's a low, like I said, it's overreported in local news outlets. They'll carry the story uh, from the moment it happens for another 24 hours, right? And it'd be lead story, especially if there are multiple shootings. Um. And I'm not even going to get into the mass shootings at the moment. I'm just going to deal with localized acts of violence. We've had marches, protests, rioting, and looting because of the death of black men at the hands of law enforcement. Every matter of fact, sometimes they don't even wait to get the facts. They don't even wait to get the your information. The narrative is already out there by news outlets because we have, you know, phones, we have all of this stuff, and it gets out there so quickly um, that before uh, an authentic, real investigation is able to happen, the, the mis-narrative is already out there. The false narrative is already out there. <clears throat> I go back to Michael Brown Jr. I was one of the ones when I heard the initial narrative of him being killed by the officer there in Ferguson and how the initial report said that he had his hands up and don't shoot. I was one of the ones who was sharing that mantra, you know, hands up, don't shoot, until the information was really revealed, you know, and I'm not talking about the videotape and all that stuff of what he did prior to this incident. I'm talking about what was really revealed when the officer and he when Michael Brown Jr. and the officer actually engaged each other, and you came to discover there was physical, there was a physical engagement. There was no, no innocence with hands up, and he was just shot. No, we, we learned that he was a tough, you know, that was a physical engagement. Michael Brown, even though he was only 18 years old, was pretty big, pretty rough, and did some damage to that cop. <laughs> he did some damage to that officer. And later, all the justice departments, even the federal justice department, determined that his death, unfortunately, was a justified death. I didn't like the fact that it was deemed justified. 
and we later discovered the the big disparities within the policing system there in the community of uh, Ferguson, and not only the the policing the uh, this uh, the policing, but also within the entirety of government. You know, there was that there was no real sense of equity. In, in their police in the entire judicial system, and that's not just in Ferguson, Missouri. That's across the across the board, which is why pastors like myself and I advocate for criminal justice reform. And when it comes to parole, we just got a bill signed into law regarding parole uh, here in the state of Mississippi, and we're very excited about that. I work with an organization called Clergy for Prison Reform, and I want to shout out. Dr. Wesley Bridges and Dr. C.J. Rhodes, who are uh, the leaders of that organization. I'm just glad to be a part. And we work tirelessly to see real change in our criminal justice system here in the state of Mississippi because, one, we understand the realities of how that came about and how that disenfranchisement has, for for generations, uh, led to greater disenfranchisement. And so we're working, and we're working to change that, and we're, we're seeing positive change every year when it comes to criminal justice reform here in the state of Mississippi. We're seeing it every year when it comes to on the federal level, and I'm glad to have been able to have had some uh, input and do some things regarding uh, criminal justice reform, sentencing reform on the, on the federal level. And it's, it's, it's good to see this happening, right? But when it, uh, when it comes down to... The reality of what's being pushed to us as black folk, there's a cynicism that that has overwhelmed us regarding the reality that is being presented to us versus the reality that is real, that actual is. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. If you'd like to, uh, you can call 347-237-5230. I'm put that there on the screen again. Um, and that's how you can get on the air, or email PastorLorenzoNeal at gmail.com, and uh, I'll invite you on if you would like to do that. All right, so I, I don't want to run out of, out of fumes. <laughs> so when, when we talk about, let, let me deal with this Black Lives Matter part, because the Black Lives Matter mantra is inclusive of the All Lives Matter mantra. And I still don't understand to this day how people have gotten so divided over two words, black and all. All means everything. So if you're saying all lives matter, it has to include black lives, right? That's the assumption. But there are some who say, no, it's only black lives. Well, then, if we're only concerned about black lives, then we, we may as well go back and be segregated. And I know people don't want me to say stuff like that, but that's just reality. <laughs> I might get censored for that. I don't care. But we have to think from a human perspective, one, right? So when it comes to the Black Lives Matter, I am all for black lives being prevented, uh, bright, the death of black lives being prevented. If I am pro-life, as I say I am, that means I'm pro-life from before conception, during conception, during life, right? Uh, you know, and it, I know some of my conservative brothers and sisters would be, well, I'm I'm anti-abortion, but I'm pro I'm pro uh, <laughs> death. You know, I, I'm pro. What is it? I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm thinking too much. Let me slow down. You know, pro-death penalty. In, that doesn't make sense to a degree. I can understand if a person commit, commits a heinous crime, uh, yeah, against humanity that is deemed worthy of such uh, a judgment, then it should be done. But we know, and this is statistical, this is not liberal, progressive, conservative, or anything. We know that there are, are so many people in, on death row in so many states who have, put, have been put on death row um, erroneously. And we're seeing case after case after case. And, of course, there are a lot of people who say I'm innocent. 
and they know they did it, but they give it a try. But we are grateful for a lot of these institutions, a lot of these organizations uh, that are working to help people who believe themselves to be innocent, and later the law and evidence determines that they are, and they get off death row. That we should celebrate that. But the problem does not start with black life. The problem starts with what do we mean by black lives matter, okay? If black lives only matter when black men are dead, then that is not a life of value, right? If we only say black lives matter when somebody dies, even if the death is by way of law enforcement, we are then in some way negating the entirety of the value of the other aspects of their life. When we talk about Black Lives Matter, we have to talk about economic development. We have to talk about infrastructure. We have to talk about educational systems. And of course, we have to talk about judicial system. So, if we're going to say Black Lives Matter only when it comes to the death of someone at the hands of of um, law enforcement, then we're not valuing the entirety of that person's existence. Because we gotta be more proactive than black folk. We gotta be more proactive. Let me let me explain what I mean by proactive. By being proactive, we have to be concerned as much as about how that life starts, how that life is lived before that life dies. And this is the reality that we don't want to deal with. Did you are you realizing or do you realize that um, black mothers are dying more during uh, during the birthing process than ever before. We have a high high death rate, and and it, it's amazing because you would think that we fall so hard to get health care. You know, we have Obamacare. The the you know we have people crying for women's reproductive rights and all of that, and yet the mortality rate for black women giving birth is steadily increasing. That's black lives. That black lives should matter. But we're not addressing that because, again, it's not being, uh, it's not coming to the forefront of our attention by media, by by uh, churches, by anything. You know, that that's one aspect of it. So we have to take that in consideration. Uh, my aunt just sent me something. Uh, uh, she said it's, it's a little, it's a little thing. I wish I could show, but it said we said Black Lives Matter. Never said only Black Lives Matter. We know all lives matter. We just need your help with Black Lives Matter. For Black lives are in danger, and, and can't argue that. Can't argue it. Black lives are in danger in, in totality, not just. Because of the uh, what would appear the more <laughs> the increased uh, increased perception of officer-involved shootings and deaths, but our lives are in danger at the hands of ourselves. Our lives are in danger at the, not just the judicial system and the structure. And some will argue that there is systemic injustice with the judicial but the with the judicial system, and there's a reasonable argument, I guess. Uh, I'm not going to get into that right now, but there, there is that. And when it comes to housing, when it comes to uh, again infrastructure. Now I don't know about y'all, but when it comes to this idea of infrastructure, where I live right now, <laughs> I, I'm like, Lord, Lord, we need better. We need better roads. We need better bridges in rural communities where a lot of black folks live here in the South. Uh, we need better uh, housing. 
And I'm not just talking about, you know, the the, pro- the project housing that a lot of people grew up in or uh, anything like that. I'm talking about we need access to land, grant, development, all of that stuff. We this is this is part of Black Lives, right? And of course, the educational system. And we all have our. Uh, you may have your concerns about the educational system, public education system in particular. Being a former educator myself, being a former, excuse me, you know, my, if you didn't know, I have a master's in education administration. So, you know, I was geared and trained to be a, a school principal. And even if I had the aspiration to be a school superintendent, district superintendent, um, but the Lord so, so otherwise, I learned what it's like to to do all that it takes to uh, be an administrator at all levels of education, you know. Uh, and I, I've worked with some wonderful educators, and I have had some wonderful educator mentors. But the reality is we pour more dollars into our public school systems, and in many cases in many urban areas, we still have failing students at failing schools. There's so much we could do to change that, but we're not being aggressive towards it. You know, we, we're waiting for legislators instead of demanding legislators that when it comes to our schools, public schools in particular. And I, I was an advocate for um, charter schools, and uh, I, I, still, I still think charter schools are a great means of uh, alternative means of educating our black students. I really do. Um, and there's always this question of whether, you know, it's taking away from public funds for public schools. That's a whole different thing I, I don't want to get into right now. I'm sure if you have your thoughts about that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But there's there's so much more that we that we could do to empower our students. It's sad that most students leave. Most students graduate, and this is a very broad statement, and there's some statistical uh, some, uh, statistics to back this up. Unfortunately, I do not have all of them on hand, and I'm going from a few that I, I know right off top, that um, the average black student, the average black male student, will graduate high school with an eighth grade reading level, okay? And some of them would graduate with a sixth grade reading level, which means they're able to understand the very basics of communication. And they are not capable or they do not put forth the effort to really um, process and analyze the information that they take in. And that, of course, is a contributor to, you know, a lot of stuff that happens, particularly when it comes to communication. You know, the ability to read, expand your mind helps you to be able to think better. When you're able to think better, you're able to process things better. And when you're able to process things better, you're able to react positively and less negatively. And there's a whole different thing I, I could get into about that. But because we're not teaching these skills, and a lot of times – and I was guilty of this, not I was in, but it's a couple of school districts that I, I worked in were in some ways guilty of trying to teach the test, not so much as to teach students just enough to pass these systemic tests that they need to take, these standardized tests. That, they're not doing that, but just enough to, to, to say, just enough for them to, to know that, and y'all got to excuse him. All that noise. <laughs> I think he's done now. <laughs> I guess not. For for all of the information that the students take in, they have to be able to retain that long enough to take the test, right? Which gives them limited time to process that information long enough to retain it for a lifetime, right? So we may have students who perform in the 85 to 95% uh, 
tactile when it comes to standardized testing, and yet they're not retaining the information for a lifetime. And, and yeah, most of that may be may never be used in their life, but it's good for trivia. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So that's a, that's an issue when it comes to that. And when it comes to uh, political power. I think this is the greatest hindrance that we have. We have a great means of political influence that we're not using. We saw some of it just recently, uh, this past January, with the election of the two Georgia senators there in Georgia. It was so, so, so moving uh, to see that voter turnout that those Georgia legislators (laughs) voted and passed legislation that seemed to be more restrictive when it comes to uh, suffrage. I don't know exactly, you know, and and I want to give props to Bishop Reginald Jackson, who is the bishop of the 6th Episcopal District of the AME Church, who has taken up the mantle and leading a charge against this injustice that he perceives it to be. Um, And um, whether it's voter suppression or not, I can't tell. I don't live in that state. I read through the bills and some of the language of the bills. I agree with some of the language of the bill. I did not agree with. Uh, it's very broad to see, but I, I, it is restrictive. I tell you that much. And not only is Georgia passing that, but other states are, are seemingly following suit to try to uh, pass more restrictive voting uh, bills. We we know for the most part blacks live overwhelmingly democratic when it comes to voting. They may be uh, conservative when it comes to some social issues. They may be conservative when it comes to fiscal issues. However, most uh, a great deal of black people lend their physical vote, their actual vote to the Democratic Party. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's typically how it is, which means that those who are in leadership in that party pretty much know that they have to do very little to get our vote. Now, 60 years ago, you know, that was the thing. I I remember, not remember, but, you know, that was the ticket. All you needed was the ticket. They told you this is the the ticket. You go and vote the ticket. They gave you the names. It wasn't illegal. They gave you the names, and this this is how we think you should vote if you are in this area of the city or if you are affiliated with this this party, this is how we think you should vote. They, they still do it. Nothing illegal about that. The problem was that people would just think, a lot of people were like, okay, I, I think I know this person. I think I know that person, but if if the party or these folk who are in leadership and we trust their voices saying that this is, this is how we should go, then that's what we're going to do. That's not the case now. We, we're learning that we can't even trust the political voices today. We can't trust uh, politicians, no matter, no matter what the party is. Can't trust them to maintain the integrity to be able to share with us, hey, this is what we're doing. We believe it is the right thing for us to do for you or for the country, for so forth, so on. And it turns out, you know, you get people like Trump in office. <laughs> Neither here nor there. The whole of the matter is, when it comes to black lives, we are not doing enough. We can't just focus on this one paradigm of the aspect of black lives, particularly when it comes to the death of black men at the hands of law enforcement, and we don't value the death of black men at the hands of other black men. If we're not rioting and looting and protesting, when Ray Ray kills Jojo on the corner, then we, we, we are not really entitled to do it when officer such and such kills Ray Ray on the corner, even if Ray Ray committed an act uh, of aggression or violation of the law that led to his death, right? We, we, we've got to be real about this. Now let's get to this black side. Uh, let me pull back up the 
the book here by excuse me, Mr. Milu Milo Milu. Now, one of the things he he discusses in this book is Pavlov's um, Pavlov's uh, experiment. And if you're not familiar with Pavlov, Pavlov is a human uh, was a leader in behavioral um, theory. And he's most famous for his experiments with dogs. Of course, he did across the board with a lot of other experiments. But the most one he's renowned for is the experiment with dogs, where he got he trained the dogs to be able to drool on command. And it was a steady, steady process by, you know, training them, getting them recognizing the stimulus, the trigger, and and once they begin to respond to the trigger, to the stimulus, then, you know, he would get them to behave the way he wanted to. So eventually, removing the stimulus, they just begin to behave uh, in, in the way he wanted to. And so what this, this type of conditioning is what I believe is happening right now for black, black men or black people in particular. Uh, there's there's this uh, cognitive behavioral thing that's happening with us. We are we are we're overstimulated with the with the portrayal, well, not portrayal, but with the imagery of officer-involved shootings. So that every time one happens, before just like with uh, um, last week before. Something before the news even got them, they were rioting. I think it was Micaiah. Before it even really hit the news, and before the evidence and the body camera and all this stuff was released, they were already in the streets. Right? They had their signs, they had their mantra, Black Women's Lives Matter, so forth and so on. And the reality of it was, once that was released, they had to kind of say, okay, well, maybe this was justified, maybe it wasn't justified, but we still have to act. Eventually, it gets to the, it's getting to the point now that anytime there's a police-involved shooting, the automatic reaction is to protest or riot, right? And most of the people who are doing this is not, they're not black folk. The black folk, you know, we're we're doing the rioting because for us it becomes emotional. This is, you know, there's this sense of connection, whether it's our brother, our sister, or whoever it is. There's this sense of connection because the person was black. Well, fit the black profile. Let me be more specific because if the person did not fit a certain black profile, I I don't think that person would get the same type of attention. We 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 see that. Uh, all the time, you have more conservative people like Candace Owens, uh, one of my heroes, uh, Dr. Bish. <laughs> I'm laughing now. I'm laughing now because y'all know who I'm about to say. <sighs> he's, he's the former director of housing and urban development under President Trump. But for many of us, Dr. Ben was the inspiration. You know, his gifted hands was the inspiration for many of us as kids. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. You know, persons who don't fall within the strict confinement of what identifies as black don't often receive the same recognition or lamenting, lamentation when something happens to them. And that should not be. That's that's another disparity when it comes to black lives. And, and, and this myth side that we're experiencing because they, they've created this, this dissonance saying you're only black if you're this, right? And then the white people say you're only anti-racist if you're this. And the whole other matter is yeah, we just messed it all up. 
We messed it all up. And we're continuing to mess it up. And the system that's trying to fix it is so broken that it's going to mess it up even worse if we allow it to do so. So we have to address the system. We have to address the reality of it. Now back to this Pavlov thing. As Mirlu says, uh, that when it comes to psychodynamics of engagement, one of the things that uh, he he knows in his book was this uh, dynamic of psychodynamic of false confession, where he tells the story of a Korean uh, war veteran who was POW during the Korean War, and they put him through a whole lot of psychological torment to the point where he eventually signed a confession stating that the U.S. was doing serious war crimes against China. I think it was China or Korea. Anyway, and they got him to name names. They got him to be very, very explicit. And, of course, this hit the cables and all of this at the time. It it made the U.S. look like a criminal war machine and it turned out when he got to when he was repatriated he you know did sworn testimony that he did that under psychological duress he did not you know he was he was brainwashed or conditioned so deeply to do it that he had to um so i i think that is something that we are experiencing in this moment and, and it's the exact opposite with white people. White people are experiencing a sense of blackmail through uh this their sense of overburdening guilt. So the privilege that they experience as white people is being used and weaponized against them so that, that if they don't stand in in line with the narrative for Black Lives Marriage Matter or anything like that then they then become enemies, and their very white privilege is weaponized against them. We saw that with the couple in Missouri who, when um, activists or protesters got into their private property, they, you know, they availed themselves of their right to defend their property, uh, and they were arrested for it, <laughs> but they availed themselves of their right to defend said property, but the, mar- the narrative that was presented to them was that they were threatening those people because those people were peaceful protesters standing in unison proclaiming Black Lives Matter and protests and all that. And this couple, in their own way, defending their own home, were the antagonists to these good people. We also saw it in a very, very strange way post-Charlottesville, during Charlottesville, I believe that was in 2017, 2018, when those white, uh, white wing, white, white right wing people descended on Charlottesville, and later on, President Trump said that, uh, well, the statement that went viral that he said it's not what he actually said, but the statement that went viral said there were good people on both sides, and the both sides meant included. <laughs> Those who were white, white men marching with torches saying the Jews will not replace us. It's crazy. I said all that to say, um, this, this menticide is deeply impacting all, all of us here in America, from urban to rural areas, where the question is, how do we really approach this matter? From black men like myself, who try to make sure we stay within, you know, law as law-abiding citizens and realize that we could have a negative encounter with a police officer, black or white, that may take abuse to his privilege as an officer that may lead to our death or even in some cases our false imprisonment. That, that, there's, this is the complexity of this matter. And the nuance of this modern existence we're in. And while I don't like it, 
I don't want to be forced on one side or the other. And as a pastor, I know I have to value black lives because not only am I a black man and a black lived experience, but my soul depends on the connection that we have as black Americans and black people from the entirety of this diaspora, the African diaspora. Because it may be happening more prominent here in America, but it's happening across the world, even across the pond, that black people were experiencing the same thing. There are black communities where, you know, in, in European cities that are experiencing something very similar. So it's it's not just our thing. And this is the last thing I want to bring out in this this the idea of mass submission. Milu writes a whole uh, section on this, talking about uh, how mass submission under totalitarian governments was the norm, uh, leading up to. Uh, World War II and post-World War II leading during the Cold War leading to the rise of dictators like Pol Pot well I don't know if he was a dictator but he killed a whole lot of people and even in Africa several uh, African leaders who were dictators and neglected the lives of their own people took the lives of their own people and there was this idea that you will submit to my leadership or to our leadership whether you want to or not. And this is the kind of conditioning that I'm afraid that will happen under the guise of Black Lives Matter. You know, not so much as a communist rule or anything like that. Thought control. You know, it's the, it's the breaking in of the bear, uh, or, or, or the uh, what's what I'm looking for. You know, when they break horses, and I know you, some of you horse riders, know what I'm talking about. You break that horse in, you break them down, to eventually that horse, that bronco, that bucking bronco, eventually becomes submissive. To your your will, I think we we're being set up for a situation like that. It's very much possible, very much possible. Um. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can leave a comment. I'm running out of time, so let me hurry up and get out of here. But um, just before I go. I want to invite you, if you are not a patron, I want to invite you to go to patreon.com slash Lorenzo T. Neal. Become a patron. You'll go there. You'll see tiers where you can sign up to support me. Help me get new equipment like cameras and uh, <laughs> laptops and stuff like that, better mics. Uh, we can do better with uh, the integration of what we're trying to do with the Zero Today radio show. So we invite you to do that. Also, um, if you have not, go to my website. And check out the uh, the podcast that I do that's called Be Your Differentiated Self. It's a podcast that I think would be very beneficial to you, exploring yourself and emotional intelligence and all that. Uh, so you can check that out. And also you can order books that I've written on the website, LorenzoTNeal.com. Go there, check it out. And... Uh, Order a copy of your book. You don't want to get it from the website. Go to Amazon.com. It's over there. Uh, all those, all the books are over there. We have some other material that's coming out. If you're in need of coaching or counseling, we do provide coaching and counseling from pastoral perspective, and we'll have more information about that. But anyway, I got to wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for the time. Thank you all so much for uh, allowing me to do all that I do, but I've got to get out of here. And if you would like to continue this conversation, hit me up on the Jiron Network. 
uh, you can listen to all archive shows of Zero Today on all uh, platforms, Spotify, iPod, Apple, Apple Podcasts, <laughs> iTunes, uh, whatever, uh, whatever platform you listen to, you can find it, iHeartRadio, all that stuff. But anyway, I've got to get out of here. You guys have a great day. Bless you.